Every day, scientists are learning more and more about how human brains work and how many of us don't fit into the old-fashioned understanding of how brains should work. But a lot of ideas about parenting and familial relationships still need to catch up to the reality of human variation. Neurological differences are natural, profoundly valuable parts of being in a community together and in being part of a family. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey, I am here to explore with you. We are all in this together. Welcome to Neurodiverging. to Neurodiverging. We are an ongoing podcast series exploring different aspects of neurodivergence within the family. My name's Danielle. Thanks for being here. This podcast is still getting started. We're on our third episode, so we're still little babies, but I would encourage you to check out our first two episodes. They were on neurodiversity and my autism journey. To give you a sense of what we're starting from, you can find everything at the website neurodiverging.com. Today, I'm very excited about this episode, and hopefully that excitement will not translate into too much rambling, but this is an important topic for me and one I find myself asked about a lot when I go to support groups for parents of autistic kids or any group that has a mix of neurotypical folks and neurodiverse folks. This is a topic I think that applies within families with kind of mixed brains a lot, and it's a good topic both for kids and adults to work on. So I think it's very much in line with parenting neurodiverse kids, but also being a neurodiverse individual with maybe neurotypical kids. So the question I'm often asked uh, by usually neurotypical parents is, are there tips for how to communicate with autistic adults or how to communicate with autistic children? I think we can broaden that question to how can neurodiverse and neurotypical people solve problems together? To know how to communicate with autistic children or ADHD children or anxious children, etc., can be really valuable. So I'm an autistic parent. I have one kid who's autistic, but they're very different than I am. And I have one kid who's not an autistic brain at all, but is an ADHD brain. And again, totally different methods of parenting for each child, which took a long time to figure out, and it was really hard. But now we've kind of got systems in place that mostly work for these ages, for these particular individual kids. But you do have to be flexible as a parent. The child you got is maybe not the child you expected in all sorts of ways, but your parenting has to match the kiddo. You can't just blindly do what your parents did or what your sister did or what your best friend is doing and assume it's going to work. You have to try to find a system that works for you as a parent and for the child. I think that's in all families, but perhaps especially in families where you have a lot of different brains doing different things all the time. So this can definitely be important when it comes to communicating with a partner or a spouse as well. You and your partner see the world differently. You have a disagreement about it. Turns out that each of you is arguing about a different thing. Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me and my partner all the time because I'm autistic and they're ADHD and our brains are processing differently, hearing Uh, the same sentence in different ways, pulling different information out of the same sentence sometimes, or thinking that different information in the sentence is the priority. Um, So communicating very differently and sometimes ineffectively because of that. 
So then, you know, we can have a fight about whatever topic because one or both of us weren't clear about our expectations. So my partner has had to learn how to communicate with autistic adults, and I've had to learn how to communicate with ADHD adults as well as ADHD children and autistic children. And obviously my partner is communicating with their children as well. Um, communication is really important in general, but across different kinds of brains, it becomes trickier. So here's the point of this podcast. I want to give you four tips that you can use to problem solve together within your family, with your partner, with your kids, with your mother-in-law, whoever it is. These are starting points to engage or things to think about to make sure you're putting effort in the right places. So these are not, you know, going to solve all of your worries, but especially with kids, I think a lot of parents start way too high level and are a little bit too picky. And especially with neurodivergent brains, you've got to start a little bit more basic. So here we go. Let's review my four tips for solving problems with your kiddo or sometimes spouse. Number one, remember Neurodiversity is the norm, and we're going to talk about all of these in more depth in a minute. Number one, neurodiversity is the norm. Number two, listen to neurodiverse people. Number three, reconsider your expectations. And number four, collaborative problem solving. This is a a method of figuring it out together with your person. So now let's discuss all of these more specifically first neurodiversity is the norm. Hopefully you were around for the last podcast and the first one on neurodiversity, but neurodiversity is normal. That means there's no right way to solve an issue because everyone's brains are different. There are likely many right ways. So you as a parent, sometimes we'll have this idea as parents that our kids need to do XYZ to get to where that we want them to be. Sometimes your kid has an idea that's sometimes a very strong entrenched idea that they need to do ABC to be happy the way they want to be. So now you're having a fight over which steps you're going to take to get to the goal. The parent and the child can have, can each have these sort of stubborn streaks, even though sometimes it's not stubbornness. Um, It can be difference in personality. It can be anxiety. It can be um, wanting to stick to the routine. But often the difference is in the way you're thinking where your priorities are, what's most important to you or your child. And just because something's important to you as a parent doesn't mean it's as important to your kid. And just because something's important to your kid doesn't mean that you as the parent understand why it's important. So we need to be thinking broadly. Neurodiversity is normal. What your child is doing is normal. What you are doing is normal. There's a way to cross the bridge. You can't assume that either you're doing it wrong or your child is doing wrong. Nobody needs to be doing anything wrong in in a problem situation. You can both be correct. There are lots of ways to solve a problem that can work out. There's hardly ever only one way to solve a problem, okay? So neurodiversity is the norm. Second, please, 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 please listen to your neurodiverse people. We know our abilities and limitations better than you do. And there may be a good reason that we're disagreeing with your process. This also applies to children, okay? Even nonverbal children. Whether they're older or younger, even children, before they develop any kind of logic centers, they know something about the interior of their mind that you don't know, that you can't know. They know something about the interior of their mind that you can't access because you're not in their body. Even young children know their abilities and their limitations to some degree, and they may have access to knowledge that you don't have access to. So please do your best to listen to them, to hear what they're saying in good faith. 
I'm not saying that you always need to agree with your kids, and I'm not saying you always need to compromise on everything. I'm saying make sure you are hearing their concern. Make sure you are understanding their concern to the best of your ability across whatever communication you have together. Please check yourself. It might be that the child doesn't need to change what they're doing, but you do as the parent. And that can be hard. I speak from experience, especially for some of us rigid thinking folks. I uh, I can be a rigid thinker, and I struggle with this a lot, especially with my second child. My first child is pretty flexible for an autistic kid. We can work together. We think similarly. Our brains work similarly, not the same, but close enough that we can generally figure stuff out together. My second child is much... Uh, they have a lot more sensory processing issues and just a lot more of that procrastination streak and feeling overwhelmed. And it can be really hard, especially before they were verbal, to figure out why everything was a fight. Um, a lot of times there was a real reason though. I mean, sometimes they were just overtired and having a tantrum, but a lot of times it was like, this feels too sticky. I don't want to touch this kind of thing. It's too cold outside. You know, I don't like the way my socks feel on my feet. Those might not feel like good reasons to you as an adult, but they were really good reasons to my kiddo. And it was my job as a parent to check my feelings and say, okay, they're overwhelmed by the sock on their foot. That feels kind of like not a big deal to me, but it is a big deal to them. And we need to address it in order to build trust in the relationship and to make them able to handle anything else I'm throwing at them as part of the day. So please listen to your neurodiverse people and consider whether what you're asking is something that they can actually accomplish. And please be flexible if you can and take time to think through the options. Please don't assume that your child is just being difficult because most kids, most kids are not just being difficult. Most kids are doing their absolute best and you need to be doing your best too. Number three, please consider, reconsider, reconsider again your expectations. This sort of goes in with your listen to neurodiverse people, but whether you are neurotypical or neurodiverse, you have a set of assumptions and expectations that ground your approach to the world. It's really valuable for you to sit down, maybe get a journal or write a blog entry or do whatever you do and think through what are your personal preconceived notions about the world and about how the world works, and more specifically about family and how family works. What do you expect the relationship to be between child and parent? What do you want the relationship to be between child and parent, between siblings, between you and your partner? What do you want that to look like? And what are you doing to make that happen? And then think through whether your expectations match what you're saying that you want. I have a good friend that this happened to. They were raised in a very kind of militaristic environment, authoritarian environment growing up, where the parents said, do this, and the child did that. And if the child didn't do that, and there, there was a pretty significant consequence. But the parent, if you ask them, wanted a close relationship with the child. The style of parenting authoritarian did not match the goal of having a close relationship with the child. And if anything, it created a very difficult relationship with a child. So please consider your expectations of what you want your home and your parenting relationship to look like, and then compare that to what you are actually doing. Is this what you're doing going to match your goals? Also, your preconceived notions about parenting might be, probably are, 
garnered from sources that are written for or made for neurotypical people. So a lot of parenting books, for example, and parenting methods work really well for certain types of kids, whether they're neurotypical or neurodiverse. But some of them are really, really geared toward neurotypical styles of thinking. And not that there's not diversity among neurotypical people, but there are some common denominators, right? And those styles of parenting and those parenting methods may just not be a good fit for your autistic kid or your ADHD kid or your SPD kid or anybody. So you're not only looking at personality type, but you're looking at what can your four-year-old with ADHD really accomplish in terms of sitting down and playing an unstructured game by themselves versus maybe a neurotypical kid. What can your autistic kid accomplish in terms of social interaction on a given day will be probably different than quote unquote typical, right? So remember again from previous episodes that what your kid can do one day isn't necessarily indicative of what they can do the next day or the day after that or the day after that. Everybody has good days and bad days. Everybody has more energy some days than other days, and you definitely want to give everybody, neurotypical or neurodiverse, time to recover from things that are difficult for them. And please understand that recovery often takes longer for neurodiverse folks than for neurotypical folks, and that is normal, and you know, you need to be giving your kids enough recovery time. So practically, just because your kid was able to tie her shoes yesterday and today she's having a huge fit about it, doesn't mean she's just... Like, she might be throwing a fit. You're the parent, you know. Sometimes they throw a fit. But sometimes, maybe even most of the time, she's telling you the truth. She really can't tie her shoes today. Is overwhelming. There's a sensory issue with how they feel. The shoes are uncomfortable on her feet. There's a weird thing going on with her sock. I, I don't know. I'm just saying, please think through what your expectations are and why you have them. And, you know, consider your priorities as a parent. Is your job today to continue to create a close and trusting relationship with your child? Or is your job today to get her shoes on? Some days, your job is going to be to get her shoes on, regardless of anything else, and that will happen, and that's okay. No judgment. But make sure that the majority of the time, your actions and your expectations of your child are matching your parenting goals. Number four, last tip, collaborative problem solving. I was not aware of this until after... I'd had kids for a number of years, and if somebody had told me sooner, oh, life would have been so much better. So collaborative problem solving is a style of problem solving or parenting where you're working with your child. You are both on the same team. You are working together towards a common goal, okay? So you're on your child's side. I am not going to say that it's the easiest parenting style to get used to. Uh, For me, personally, with my personality, there was a big learning curve for it. I think in our culture, in American culture, you know, there's this idea that children, especially very young children, don't know what they want, don't have a lot of abilities yet, aren't very independent, and they can't make decisions for themselves, even little decisions. And it can be really disconcerting as a parent when your idea is to be this authority figure for your kid. It can be really disconcerting to have to have, instead of being an authority figure and have a a child, you know, be this kind of obedient, quiet, kind, nice child that a lot of us white folks aim for, um, to instead have a 20-minute conversation with your two-year-old about how we can solve the problem with their sock. Um, We can feel sometimes like it's a waste of time, especially if you're trying to get out of the door. You got to go do stuff. And why are they making such a big fuss about their sock? And it can feel like they're just trying to pick fights. Um, and and 
collaborative problem solving is about backing down from that reactivity and thinking through the relationship as the priority first. So I'm just going to keep coming back to the sock example because I cannot tell you how many hours of my life I argued with my youngest over how their socks fell on their feet between the ages of like one and a half and three hours of my life devoted to arguing about socks. But let me tell you, you spend the 20 minutes here and there helping your child figure out the socks, hearing what they have to say about the problem, um, letting them know that you're there with them, that you're hearing them, validating their experience brainstorming ideas to solve the problem, giving critique in like a positive way and hearing their concerns and letting them decide as many things as they possibly can, you will see how much faster communication starts to happen overall. And sometimes this means as a parent, letting go of things. You really want them to have matching socks, but that's just not going to happen today because their right foot does not like this kind of sock and their left foot does not like this other kind of sock. So we're going to have to have non-matching socks. A small example, but this works for big things too. Collaborative problem solving is hearing your kid validating them, working with them on the same team. You are not fighting each other to get to the grocery store on time. You are acknowledging that your kid is more important than getting to the grocery store on time, okay? You're figuring out where is the bottleneck? What is this problem? And from the kid's perspective, and how can we help them figure this out? I will tell you that although this takes more time initially, both in getting yourself used to this new method of parenting and also getting your child used to it, the more you practice, the better it gets. The more you do it, the more your child trusts you to help them solve the problem and the less they tantrum or stall on the problem. Um, and also, the more they come to you ahead of time and say things like, I was thinking about this and I perceived this problem might occur and what can I do about it? My youngest, when they were three, um, very verbal, uh, this is my ADHD child, they would come come to me ahead of time when they were three years old and, and say, this is going to be a problem. And, you know, it might take us a long time to get in front of it. But now that they're five, we are, we are so good at this, guys. We are so good at it. Um, I really, it's a really fantastic process. Anyway, if you take the time, you practice the better you get, the better your child gets. They come to you ahead of time sometimes, and that ends up saving you time later because you're not arguing about the sock while you're trying to get out the door. You already have a plan for the sock because you both thought about the sock ahead of time. Other examples that I came up with the, from just like the past week with my kids, um, one child did not want to wear pants. I was not having a great week. It's been a hard week. My initial response was not very generous. It was like, you've got to wear pants. It's cold. It's winter. You can't not wear pants. People will see you through the window, whatever. We had a big to-do about the pants. And finally, I was like, well, you know, I took a breath. I backed off a little bit. I came back. I was like, I'm really concerned about you not wearing pants because of how cold it is and because people could see you through the window. And they said, well, I'm itchy and I don't really want to wear pants because I'm so itchy. And also they said that the pants felt really tight and it was uncomfortable. So we figured out that, oh, well, if we wear a skirt, is that itchy? No, that's not itchy. And there was no pressure from wearing the skirt. So it wasn't too tight. So it solved the problem. So shifting my brain from they don't have anything on their legs and they're naked and they're going to be freezing to what is their problem and how can we work around that problem? created a really easy direct solution that didn't take us like half an hour of tantruming installing to sort. 
Another example is, I have a child who does not like to touch metal and will not touch hardly any kind of metal. I think it's an issue with it feeling cold, but it's, uh, the explanation isn't consistent. So it's a little hard to, to drill down, but we had, um, to do over time, many workarounds for this, but it's been overall really worth it. So now this kid has plastic flatware, uh, reusable plastic that we just bring everywhere. We had a friend cut out the zipper from their winter coat and put Velcro there instead so they can still be warm and wear their winter coat. Before this, they would not wear their winter coat at all. It was just a non-starter. Now they'll wear it. They would not eat at restaurants because restaurant flatware is metal. It was, again, a non-starter. You couldn't, if, if they couldn't, like, pick it up with their hands, they would not eat. Um, so there are a lot of really valuable <laughs> points. You're not, like, giving in by helping a kid with a sensory issue. You're, you're helping them adapt in more environments by giving them um, options like plastic flatware or Velcro on their coat. So let me say, was it sort of annoying to figure this out, to find someone to replace the zipper with Velcro? It totally was. Is it annoying to wash a Velcro coat? Yes, but they wear their coat, so I'm going to take it. And those are two big examples of places where collaborative problem solving really works. You don't expect the problem to be, oh, I don't want to touch metal, or oh, my pants are too itchy. Unless you also deal with sensory processing issues and the same one, same ones as your kid. So there's a tendency, I think, for parents to expect that the child is just testing. Like that every time the child is like, oh, my pants are itchy, I'm not going to wear them. That the child is just testing boundaries. And some kids do test. It's a thing. I'm not saying testing doesn't exist. But with neurodivergent kids, I'm saying that it is not always testing. And possibly most of the time it is not testing. A lot of times there is an actual problem and they may not have the resources to solve it by themselves. And they might really need you to provide some resources for them. So all of these kinds of issues I want to point out, like the zipper and the itchiness, can be difficult to communicate, especially for very young kids or kids with limited words or limited verbal skills or kids who are communicating with alternative methods. Just coming up with a sensation of itchiness and then translating that into verbal or typed out words, translating sensations into symbolism through language, it can be really hard for some of us, and not all of us by any means, but give your kid the benefit of the doubt and help them. I am an adult person and sometimes don't realize that I'm cold or hungry. Kids have the same problems. Um, sometimes you have to help them brainstorm the problem too. Like, uh, you could say, I see you're having this problem with your pants. I think it's because you're cold. Is that true or not? Okay, no, it's not true. Here are some other problems I can think of about the pants. Do they feel weird? Are they too tight? Are they too loose? Are they itchy? Are they too soft? Are they too rough? You need to work with your kids to help them fill in the blanks. Um, also, ADHD kids sometimes aren't particularly able to generate um, words or free associate. So sometimes they need a more fill in the blank approach, like I just demonstrated, to get them there a little faster or uh, like a multiple choice approach you can think of it as. Um, don't be afraid to offer some support if they seem open to it and help them verbalize what they're going through. I think at least in our household, we found that if we have an initial issue and we're able to work through it, especially if part of the problem was that the child was having trouble like speaking toward the issue, next time they'll remember some of the prompting that my partner or I did and be able to kind of access that script again. So they can use those words from the prompting to tell us about the issue next time. So giving them a script initially and letting them just reuse that same script over and over again can really help with collaborative problem solving approaches. 
Um, if your kid has trouble generating words or linking words to feelings, give them a script. Make it a little bit flexible. Give them fill in the blanks for that script, but give them something that they or you can reuse next time and then prompt them to reuse it the next time you're having a problem. It can really, really help. I also just want to quickly mention that I do have a series of posts on the blog at neurodiverging.com all about collaborative problem solving and parenting, how to use it, what kind of work you as the parent need to do before you're implementing it, some examples of collaborative problem solving in action. Um, I also strongly recommend, if you have not read, Transforming the Difficult Child by Howard Glasser. It's the OG book on collaborative parenting for kids with autism, ADHD, executive processing issues, SPD, any kind of challenging behavior or condition, especially if you have a child who's prone to tantruming for long periods of time, or you're having trouble communicating with them, or they're a staller or they get overwhelmed easily. Transforming the Difficult Child can be a fantastic read. Howard Glasser is the author, and the book does a really good job of explaining the collaborative problem-solving approach, which is why I recommend it. The collaborative problem-solving approach fixed so many of our problems in our family. Not everything, but so much, so I really do recommend it. I wish I'd found it five years sooner. So let's review our four tips for solving problems with your kiddo. One, remember neurodiversity is the norm. Two, Listen to neurodiverse people. Hear what your child is saying or your spouse or your person. Make sure you actually understand their concern. Three, please reconsider your expectations. Are they reasonable? Do they match your goals? Do they match what your child is able to do? Four, collaborative problem solving. (laughs) Figure it out together with your person. Where's the bottleneck? What is stopping this from working? And how can we address it? brainstorm. Don't get stuck on your idea. Hear everybody's idea. I hope that these tips will help you. They are general, but they are a great starter to just working through problems in your family and especially child-parent relationship issues. Go back to the basics and just look at them. I want to thank you so much for listening and for being here with me on Neurodiverging. I always, always welcome any feedback questions, and I really love to hear your stories if you're willing to share, or if you have any questions as to how these tips can apply in your own life. Show notes are available on my website, which is neurodiverging.com. You can also sign up for my mailing list there if you'd like to be notified when new episodes or blog posts come out, and I'm on Patreon if you'd like to support this podcast. Thank you again, and remember... However we communicate, we are all in this together.